We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, and follow with me as I read the scripture here this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumlet, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. You may be seated. I'm excited to dive into this passage here this morning. As I was reflecting and preparing for the message, uh, came across the idea of this promise and, and the fact of when promises are given, sometimes we're impatient, right? Would you, we'd acknowledge we're impatient people sometimes. We, 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 we like to, we're used to having things uh, come quickly and knowing things quickly. And let me explain this a little bit. Let me expand this a little bit for you. I'm, I'm 38 years old, so I'm not, I'm not too old, but I'm not too young either. And when I was a kid, when you wanted to go to the movie theater... You either had to open up the newspaper and find the times, or you called the movie theater. So the kids under like 20 years old are looking at me with this face of, what are you talking about? You, the, the newspaper had all the listings of the shows that would be coming, and, and I thought that was too old-fashioned, and plus my dad was reading it, so I wouldn't do that. I would call the movie theater to find out the times. But something interesting would happen occasionally when you would call, because as it, it wouldn't ring, you would hear this beeping sound on the other side of the phone. Remember what that is? The busy signal. You know why? Because someone else in that proximity was calling the same time you are, and so the phone wouldn't go through. You hear a busy signal. Now, if you lived in a house that had a digital phone, you'd hang up and pick it back up and push redial. But I lived in a house that had a rotary phone, and so you have to t turn the phone again to do it. And it's funny enough, my parents still had a rotary phone in their house not too many years ago back that they were renting from the phone company. Did you know you did that? I'm like, you could have bought a car by now if you'd have stopped. <laughs> but that was how it was to find a movie. that, And you, you play this game until you got through and you could listen to the, the recording. And so some poor person had to be hired by the phone, the movie company to, to list us out every week in this recording. But that's how you found out where to, 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 to go to a movie. I remember when I had to do certain homework projects that I would go to my parents' encyclopedias to find information or I'd go to the library. But it's not that, that the case now, right? What, what do we carry with us everywhere? We have a library here, right? And, and not only a library, I have someone that will talk back to me and tell me information. And I did this in the first service, but I won't do it to you because I know you're all recording the game. But, you know, I can quickly say to my phone, what is the Detroit Tigers, or excuse me, Detroit Lions score? Oh, I better stop there. 
Are the Detroit Lions winning? are trailing the Rams 7-0. Oh. <laughs> right there, I know, I, I can find out. I don't even have to type it. I just ask, and Surrey is there. You know, I, and, and, and I found myself, even in that, waiting for that two seconds and think, come on, Surrey, quicker. I want the information quickly. You know, the funny thing is, as these advances happen with our culture and our technology, we don't become more thankful. We become more demanding of this. You know, it's shocking to myself how disturbed I get when I go somewhere and my cell signal isn't that great. And I walk into a building and I think, okay, do they have Wi-Fi? And I'm searching for it. And, and then I get frustrated. Seriously, they don't have Wi-Fi? Is this 1992? Come on, get Wi-Fi, get it quickly. I need to get the information. I need to have it now. You know, and I begin to ask the question, when did this happen to us? When did we become so impatient? We want things now. We want, we want answers. You know, we hear the promise, but, but we'd like to see it happen. We want peace. We want good tidings of great joy every day. And our hearts then begin to, to rush to the ideas that we have a, a better plan than God. Then. So we, we start to formulate and implement our plans. If we just do this, then this will happen and things will, will change for the better for us. And we begin to, to go into life thinking we've got it all figured out. I believe that all of those thoughts are wrapped out into the, the simple facts that we, we don't like to wait and we struggle to trust. You know, we're living in the already and not yet. And, and it's driving us crazy. This morning, we look at a very familiar passage, a Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. And, and in this passage, we see promises given that would not be fulfilled for a very long time. People had to wait. God's people would have to wait through pain and through war and trouble as they, they, they look for their Messiah. They'd have to trust their God. And I want to dive in here and, and walk through this passage this morning. But before I do, join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had to come together as the body of Christ and to worship. I thank you for all of those involved this morning and the, the hours and the energy put into practicing and working through songs that would lead us and lead my heart to worship. Thank you for Hannah and her hard work and just leading us before the throne and remembering the point of Christmas. And now God, as we continue to worship the preaching of your word, I ask that you would give us insight and understanding that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher here today. Pray that you would be the focus of what's said. Pray as we, we dive into Isaiah 9, God, that we would understand of this, this promise given that darkness would go to light and sadness to joy and captivity to liberty and war to peace. And that we'd see that, that the promise of of the Messiah, that he's majestic and mysterious and magnificent, that he's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Father, help us this morning. Help everyone here as they've had issues and circumstances this week to bring those before your throne with hearts and minds ready to learn and to grow. And I pray that we'd come away changed this morning. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's a number of things I wanna, I wanna show you through this passage here this morning. And first, uh, two main points that I wanna cover. And first is the promise given. And in that is a few things that I prayed through that, that you'd recognize and see the promises that were given to, the, to Israel, that, that darkness would go to light and, and, and life would turn from sadness to joy and captivity to liberty and from war to peace. And then a second point, the main one I want to see is the promises described and who this is. And then you'd see that Jesus is majestic and mysterious and magnificent. And then the, the terms that Isaiah uses in verse 6 there, that he's our wonderful counselor, a mighty God everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And so as we begin, we'll look at the first point here, the promise given. You know, in spite of the context of the Isaiah passage, it's really a very positive message that Isaiah brings. But you can probably understand the hesitancy from the listeners and, and, and to believe what Isaiah is writing to be true and it's gonna happen. Can you imagine in, in history, going back to the French people, reacting to a message of joy and of hope after their country falls prey to the attacks and an eventual complete rule of the Nazis. The struggle that would be. Or how foreign must a message like this have been to those stationed at Pearl Harbor, December 14th, a week after in 1941, to the horrific bombing. And yet this is the kind of message we see here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah announces that through their gloom and their distress, there will come a time when there will be happiness and joy and salvation. That, that life would turn from darkness to light and sadness to joy and captivity to liberty and, and war to peace. And so he begins here of, of that description of darkness to light. He says that this description of the land of Galilee in verse 1 is the people are choosing ultimately their own way. And the consequences for the decisions, they're not choosing God's way, they're choosing their own. And, and they're trusting in human glory instead of God. And so the nation finds themselves in, in deep darkness. And Isaiah writes in verses 1 and 2, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he had made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You know, at this time in, in the history of the northern kingdom, it had been completely destroyed when the Assyrian army had moved in. I, I find it interesting as, we, as you read and study this and look at it in light of all of history, that this is the area of the northern kingdom in which, where the light of the Messiah would shine forth. In Matthew 4, verses 13 through 17, Matthew quotes these verses and how it's to be fulfilled as the home base for Jesus' ministry. It was in the northern kingdom that Jesus would base his ministry. It is in Galilee where the Assyrian conquest had happened, and then God would redeem and bring forth a light for the world. Now, the people of Israel had, had done nothing to, to deserve this, this grace. They had walked away from God impatiently. They're looking to solve their own problems their own way, and they'd been swept away into apostasy. It's nothing except God's grace that is promised for them. And God promises that life would turn from darkness to light, but he also promises that their sadness would be turned to joy. God is greater than the Assyrian army, and he promises to them in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their despair, that their sadness will be turned to joy. In verse 3, Isaiah prophesies a time when God will, will do this. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. These people are, they're, they're depressed, they're, they're, they're sad, they're struck down in defeat. And God speaks through Isaiah and says, your sadness will turn to joy. He, he, was, he was going to bring back joy to the people. He was, he was promising great joy. Well, what kind of joy? What, how does he describe this joy? Well, it's the kind here, he says, is, is when the harvest comes or when the battle is over and people divide the spoil. And so as I thought through that, we, we're kind of disconnected from that. The harvest, I don't know if we have any farmers here, uh, but you're, you're usually used to that. But how do we apply this now? Well, my mind raced to the, the idea of dividing spoil when in Halloween you go out as a kid and you take your pillowcase because that's bigger than a bag and you fill it up with candy, right? And what's the first thing you do when you come in the house? You dump it all out to see the spoil. You want to see what you've got. And usually dad tax happens where I take my portion. But they admire the spoil, the harvest of the work, right? Or, or when the same child opens up their gifts on, on their birthday or Christmas and, and it's a harvest of toys for them at that point, of, of gifts. You remember that as a kid, you, the joy you felt? You remember it was like to wait for that one, that one gift that you really wanted. And then when you open it up, the, the joy welling up inside of you, you were you're excited, you, 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 you were looking forward to that and now you have it. Well, well this, so what he's saying here is, is much more important than candy and toys. This is a lasting joy. This is, this is real and sustaining joy. This is eternal joy. And, and he says that it's gonna be fulfilled through the birth of a Messiah. Now Luke writes in the second chapter of Luke, he says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Folks, Jesus has come in order that you might have joy, real joy, sustaining joy. And the message of Christmas is to bring joy to your hearts that you have a rescuer. And so God promises that life will turn from darkness to light and that sadness to joy, but he continues and says life would turn from captivity to liberty. Have you ever witnessed or observed that the elation that comes when a captive is set free? You know, they were once held, but now they're free to move, free to live. And there's so many times in, in Israel's history where they're in bondage to another nation because of their sin. And now Assyria was that nation. But Isaiah writes in verse four, he says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. They're, they're captive here. They're, their oppression here, it's happening. And what does he say? What is the promise? That it's gonna be broken. They'd experienced a, a heavy taxation from the Assyrians. And so freedom from that sounded great. And the mention of Midian was probably a reference to, to the victory through Gideon where, where just 300 men defeated them in Judges 7. But as Israel now is, they're subdued from all sides and they're afraid. But God is greater than their enemy and he promises that just as these people experience grief and despair of the battle, they will also experience the joy and triumph of victory. So God promises that their, that their life would turn from captivity to liberty. The last point there is that their life would turn from war to peace. Look at verse five. Isaiah writes, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is he saying? War will be eliminated. 
Even the elements of warfare will be done away with. And I'm sure for them at this point, it sounds good, but they're in the midst of war right now. They're in the midst of this. So how will this come? How, how will the war cease? Well, he's gonna continue in this because there's another promise. A king is coming and he's coming in the form of a child. And how, how completely ridiculous this must have sounded to the listener that, that really a, a child is gonna defeat this mighty foe but God's answer to oppression and, and hostility of this proud and cruel world is not to come a guns a-blazing like a warrior to smash the opposition. No, he comes as a baby. Even though they're consumed with their present enemy, Assyria, there is a, a greater enemy that Jesus comes to defeat, the enemy that was there in the garden. And, and God promised then that he would be crushed. The seed of the woman would destroy the head of the serpent, as we talked about last week. And so the promise is given, the people will be rescued, but by whom? Is it a, a mighty warrior to destroy their enemies or will God raise up another, another nation to defend them? No, he promises their savior will come as a child. And Isaiah spends the next two verses describing who this promised one is. So secondly, the promise described. This world in which they live and the world in which we live now is in darkness. And we've, we've read through the first five verses that we need a rescue. You will not find hope, you will not find peace or find light in, in other world religions. They are further shackles for your life. You, you will not find lasting joy in this world and, and its fleeting pleasures. You will, you will not find peace in stuff and experiences. You, know, you can only find all of those things in a man, in one person. And Isaiah gives us understanding in who this man is, but but like other, just like other men, he was born a baby. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, I think, that we, we seem to pull this passage out, as I'm doing today, out of the box in the midst of Christmas decorations. You know, we pull the verse out, as, as we do, to hang it on the tree or hang it around our house, and we think and we, we study this verse as rightly applied, these two verses, but, but I really feel that these verses are much more needed for our life outside of Christmas, because the promises given in, in verses six and seven teach us that we can truly trust the king of kings. He says in verse six, for to us a child is born. Now, all, all of the promises that we have, we have covered up to the birth of a promised Messiah, a savior who is to come to a people. And the, the hope of the world is not a scientific discovery. It's not, a, it's not some sort of social advancement through Facebook. The hope of this world is not the progress of politics or, or new laws to protect us. The hope of mankind is not in Congress. It's not in our, our local government. Our hope is wrapped up in a baby. Come long ago, prophesied to be our savior. Our only hope is God. So read with me here in verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you're here this morning hopeless, don't go searching in this world for that true thing because you won't find it. Place your hope in God. 
I want you to understand this because there's three descriptions of who this God is and that he's worthy of your trust. He's majestic and he's mysterious and he's magnificent. The first is he's majestic. And we see that this man would have a, a very unique birth. Verse six says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And at first reading, it seems that both phrases uh, seem to be saying the same thing. But as one commentator said, this is a case of Hebrew poetic parallelism. The second phrase adds a very important difference. Notice that the text says that he would be given. And this, this speaks of the deity of Jesus. Well, why is that? It's because that this phrase clearly implies that the Savior would be sent from God, would be given to us from God. You know, this is a, a reference earlier in Isaiah's book in chapter 7, verse 14, when he's writing this. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. I just soak that in. Think through that during this Christmas season. God with us. You know, the gospel of John tells us in John chapter three that God sent his son into our world. And don't be fooled, Jesus, Jesus did not have a beginning in, in Bethlehem. That's not where life started for him. No, in John one, we, we read that Jesus, who is called the world, has dwelt from eternity with God, the Father. And then John 1.14, we read that he became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, God's Christmas gift to humanity was his very own son. It only could be God's son who could fulfill the promises of giving light and joy and peace to a devastated nation, to us. It could only be God's son who could live a sinless life and bear our sins upon his back on the cross. You know, the verse continues in Isaiah 9, verse 6. It says that the government should be upon his shoulders. And the word translated government is is found only here in this prophecy, and it's better translated rule or dominion or responsibility. And what is he responsible for? What, what is his res, uh, ruling here? It's, it's to be everything. And this verse affirms his lordship, and it looks at the time yet still to happen when, when Christ will reign over an earthly kingdom. And on that day, he will have the government of the world rest on his shoulders. And until that time comes, his kingdom is invisible. Luke 17 talks about this and says, when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about his kingdom, this is his response. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus currently rules over those that trust in him, but it's an invisible rule. One day it will become visible, and those that do not acknowledge him will see his lordship. Jesus is majestic. He's also mysterious. He continues in this, is that a child would be born, a child. You know, that speaks of the humanity of Jesus. The, the savior of the world would come as a baby. The savior needed to come as human to deal with human sin. And God came as a man so that he could get on our level, so that, so that we could understand him. You know, God exists in a realm that's, that's impossible for us to fully understand. I remember the very first time that I, took a, a foreign trip and I went to Germany in high school and really excited until I got off the airplane and started walking in Frankfurt, Germany and having no idea where I was going. 
And only because a few English signs littered throughout to point me to baggage claim that I got there, but I needed things to be translated. I was lost. Well, God translated himself into a person so that we could understand who he was, who he is. He came as a child and grew into a man so we can understand who God is, and it's a great mystery. 1 Timothy 3.16, that was preached on a few weeks ago with Eric Nyborg, and the verse says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Dr. John Phillips says of this beautifully, he says, the great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity without discarding the deity or without distorting the humanity. It's a mystery. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is is an incredible mystery, a perfect blending of a perfect deity and a sinless humanity. Another quote here from R.G. Lewis, and and let this just, this will bake your noodle, okay? This will really set you back here. He says, Jesus is the only one born with no earthly father, but an earthly mother. He had no heavenly mother, but a heavenly father. He was older than his mother, and yet as old as his father. Go ahead and explain that to your neighbor today, okay? It's a mystery. There is no one like Jesus Christ. Who who could dare to be like him? He is the God-man. When he lived on earth, he paid taxes, but as God, he would pay them with a coin from a mouth of a fish. When he walked with humans, he would eat food, but as God, he took a few loaves of bread and fish and multiplied it to feed 5,000 people. Jesus Christ is no mere human. He is God and yet man. He's a mystery. He's also magnificent. When you read the names in the Bible, they carry much more weight, it seems, than than the names in our culture. And there are more than 215 names for Jesus that are listed from Genesis to Revelation, each describing who he is and what he does. And, And none are in such a tight and concise package as Isaiah does here in in Isaiah chapter 9. When you read these together, they describe totally the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he does. It says he's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father and prince of peace. And each of these describing his humanity and his deity. One pastor, Danny Akin, I think rightly observes and unpacks this, I think for me at least, was really helpful. He says, he walks through these, these, these descriptions of who he is. He says, wonderful emphasizes his deity, but counselor emphasizes his humanity. Mighty emphasizes his humanity, but God emphasizes his deity. Everlasting emphasizes his deity, and Father emphasizes his humanity. Prince emphasizes his humanity, and peace emphasizes his deity. And and coupled with the, the child born and the son given, The result is nothing less than God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. God came down to live with us. So each name not only describes his character and his relation and reaction to creation, but also his his activity in creation. And I want to walk through these four descriptions. The first one is wonderful counselor. The Hebrew reads, it's, it's a wonder of a counselor. There's no confusion with this counselor. There's no, there's no chaos with this counselor. You know, but we live in a world of chaos and confusion, don't we? The people living in this world are trying to sort through this, 
this mess, trying to make sense of, of their life, what is happening. And the place that they turn so much of the time in our world is a worldly counselor. We have um, psychoanalysts and therapists and psychiatrists. But there's a problem. Those people truly desire to help others. They just don't have all the answers. And it's not a lack of trying. They go to school, they work hard, they earn degrees, they spend countless hours working with people, learning from the best, but there's still a problem. And all that they do will eventually fail. It's not good enough because they don't rely on the wonderful counselor. They do not use God's word. And when I sit down as a pastor to counsel someone else, it's, it's not because I've, I have all the answers. I think someone jokingly said to me the week after I was introduced as senior pastor, I was like, oh, good, you're a senior pastor. You have all the answers. I smiled and said, no, but I know the one who does. That's what we do when we counsel. When we sit down, it's not a matter of that I have all this experience and all this wisdom that I need to bestow upon you. No, I know the wonderful counselor. And, and I want to show you what his, his word says. I, I don't have all the answers, but I know the one who does. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Whose divine power? It's, it's God's power. Jesus never needed to seek counsel from others. He gave counsel. And when I sit down to counsel, I begin by saying that we're going to, to rely on God's power and his spirit and his word to guide us through it. It's not by my wisdom. And I'm thankful that they come in for counseling. But, but there seems to be this stigma in, in, in our culture against counseling. And really what it is, is someone saying, I have a problem, I need help. So let me ask today, do you have problems? Raise your hand if you have any problems. Because if you're not raising your hand, I want to talk to you afterwards and find out. We all have problems. Why? We're all human. And we need answers, right? We, we, need, we want to find answers. And don't you want to go to someone that has the answers? Don't you want the best? I mean, that's, that's really the American motto, right? I mean, it's a good thing. We want the best for the issues that we have. If you have a heart issue and you need a surgeon to do surgery, do you go home and hop on Craigslist looking for a guy that needs work? Or are you looking for the best, right? You want someone that, that's knowledgeable, that has experience, that knows what he's doing. And so when we have problems in our life, we should always want this too. We, we shouldn't have to go to our heathen neighbor and ask for their opinion. Someone who rejects God and doesn't care about Jesus Christ or the word of God. No, we come before the God of the universe, our, our wonderful counselor looking for help. He knows what to do. And, and as our church family, our elders and those involved in counseling and pastors, our desire is to point you to him. You want answers? It's from his word. And we're going to point you to him and to what God's word says. He, he made you, and he has allowed these problems into your life, so don't you think he has the answers? And Jesus is our wonderful counselor, because he's God, and he is the source of truth. The second thing is, and, is that he's their mighty God. And I, I love this one because of the words and what they mean. Mighty God can also be translated hero God or warrior God. 
He is our battling God, our hero, our mighty warrior. And what do all these terms make you think of? War, right? It's a battleground. The king with four names is a warrior God, a hero God who, will, who would fight a battle greater than Waterloo or Valley Forge, more decisive than Gettysburg or D-Day. No, the warrior God, the captain of our salvation, would take the field at Calvary and engage the forces of evil, of Satan, of death, of hell, and the grave. And when the dust would settle, you would see an empty tomb with our victor Jesus standing as a testimony to the mightiness of our God. He is our warrior God. And when Jesus comes back to rule this earth, he will display his divine power by eliminating evil. John MacArthur talks about this passage. He says, because Christ is God, he can forgive sin, defeat Satan, liberate people from the power of evil, redeem them, answer their prayers, restore the broken souls, and reign as Lord. Are you facing something right now in your life that seems too great for you? Are you facing a foe that you can't see or you don't understand? Are you weak and fragile and you lack the ability to fight? You have a mighty God on your side who wages war. He already conquered sin and Satan. And he's working your life. So go to him. So he's our wonderful counselor. He's our mighty God. And he's our everlasting father, he says. And this does not suggest that the son is also the father for each person in the God has distinct. Now, among the Jews, the word father means originator or source. So, for example, in John 8, 44, Satan is called the father or the originator of lies. And so Jesus is the source of what here? He's the source of eternal life, for he is eternal. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Though born in Bethlehem in time, he had come from eternity past, and he will live through eternity future. That's why in, in verse 7 in this passage, God promises that this king will establish an eternal kingdom. And Jesus is the source of eternity. If you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus. I realize as I get older that, that life is truly short. We are just a blip on the radar screen. And I remember very clearly in, sitting in elementary school and staring at the clock and just thinking it was going backwards. It felt like every day took forever, that it was moving so slow. But now, now things seem to, to move so fast. Now, our lives are like a vapor when we're, we're outside with cold weather and it comes out of our mouth. It's here one moment and it's gone. You know, I, I echo the words and I remind myself on a regular basis of the old Puritan preacher, Richard Baxter, who said, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. I, th I try to think of it every time I stand behind this pulpit. And, and what do dying men need? They need a savior. They need the source of eternal life. If we have any hope to life after this one, we need an everlasting father who can give eternal life. You know, the religious leaders thought that when they killed Jesus, the threat was over, that this was done, that they ended this. But God had other plans. And Jesus rose from the dead. He overcame death, and he proved this prophecy true. 
he indeed could be called everlasting father. None of us here this morning realize how close death is to us. It, it stalks our every step and waits around every corner. And God's word says it like this. It says it is appointed until men to die once, but after this, the judgment. In reality, we all are just one breath away from judgment. Your life hangs in the balance on whether you are trusting in the everlasting father or the, the source of eternity or you're trusting in something else. My encouragement to you this morning is that you trust in God because today is a day of salvation. Trust in Christ for redemption of your sins. Christ is the only way. So Jesus is not only our, our wonderful counselor, a mighty God and everlasting father. Last, he says he's our Prince of Peace. When Israel, who had been demolished by war, read this, you know, God's promises that he would give him a, a Prince of Peace. And if you fast forward again to the same passage in Luke 2, when the angels announced Jesus' birth, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. You know, in a world that talks about peace but experiences very little of it, God promises peace. In fact, there really hasn't been much peace on earth since uh, this was announced. There's been wars and rumors of wars since the announcement was made. But God promised to send the Prince of Peace. What kind of peace does he give? Well, he's given peace now, presently. He gives peace with God for us. To every person who's at war with God because of their sin, God promises that he will send a Prince of Peace. Romans 5.1 says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're not following God, you're at war. You're at enmity. You're against God. And God says, being justified by faith. So are you at peace with God this morning? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? If we are a believer, he also gives inner peace. This Prince of Peace can also to give peace to our soul. Even in the midst of the storms of life, even in the midst of the difficulties, we can have peace, as Philippians says, that passes all understanding. He also gives peace among Christian people. You know, at the birth and the announcement of the, the angels, he says, but we would give peace on earth and peace among men of goodwill. Peace is given to earth of men of goodwill now. You know, if you show me a place where there is love and joy and peace among people, I will show you that that group most likely will be ruled by the Prince of Peace. If your family will yield to Jesus, there will be peace in your family. If, if we as a church will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, there will be peace in our church. But then he promises one thing here in verse 7, that peace would come to the world. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus will rule completely. His rule will be universal and unparalleled. And the government will be upon his shoulders. No one will vote him in and no one will vote him out. He will rule eternally. There will be no end in sight of his reign. Hope will burst out of hopelessness and it will keep growing. 
And peace will burst out of chaos and keep growing. And and justice will burst out of injustice and keep growing. And he'll rule powerfully. There's, There's nothing that's too impossible for him to do. Nothing less than the zeal of the Lord will bring all of this to pass. His jealous passion to establish the rule and reign of his son. You know, in heaven, there's no confusion about what Christmas is about. And through all time, God is burning with passion and zeal and holy jealousy for the one thing. And that one thing is the glory of his son in whom he takes delight. Martin Lloyd-Jones once remarked, he said, ultimately, nothing matters but what we think of him. Ultimately, nothing matters but what we think of him. And Isaiah tells us this morning to think of him as majestic. Think of him as marvelous and mighty. And I'm sure Isaiah's audience might have scratched their heads after hearing these words. You know, the questions rolling around, when will this happen? How will this come to pass? But for us, living on on the other side of the coming of Christ, as he came to die for us, as, as he rose from the dead on the third day, we can be joyful. We can be joyful not because our lives are perfect, not because we live a sinful life or a sinless life, excuse me, but we can be joyful because we as sinners, we can know and experience his righteousness. He is our righteousness. We can be joyful because he he has made a way for us with God and now we're at peace with God. We can be joyful because we know that while we cannot expect complete justice right now on this earth, we know he's in control and that he reigns with justice. Remember what Isaiah says, for to us a child is born. Jesus was born for us. He came to be our redeemer. He came to set us free from slavery and the burden of sin, the burden of shortcomings and cruelty in this world. He came to take the weight away from our shoulders. He came to bring a solution for mine and for your sins. He came to to take those sins upon himself on the cross. And he wants to be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father and prince of peace. My encouragement to you this morning is that you would invite him, embrace him, and adore him this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had to join together as the body of Christ and to look into your word. Father, I thank you so much for this season. That you allow us to, to celebrate and to enjoy and all the festivities that are involved, the, the, the parties with friends and, and family, the chances to, to fellowship. Father, I thank you for even the, the rest that comes, the break from the norm in some ways. I pray for those here this morning that maybe don't have that rest coming, that, that work continues, the busyness continues, and I pray you give them strength through it all. And Father, I, I look forward for opportunities in the next continued coming, coming weeks to, to talk about Christmas with others. Father, help us not to, to wage war about terminology, 
but help us to be gospel proclaimers about Christmas. Help us to point people to the reason. Help us to do that with love and and care and sensitivity. Father, help us also, as we've learned this morning of who you are, to, to think on these things, to rejoice in these things, to remember that you are our wonderful counselor. In the midst of issues and struggles and problems in our life, help us to, to run to you, that you are our mighty God, that you are our everlasting Father and our Prince of Peace. Thank you, Father for sending your son to die for us. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.